This is an RNZ podcast. Well, what a turnaround. There is a buyer for stuff. It is clearly not NZME that was fighting to continue exclusive negotiations and was rejected by the courts. It is a management buyout pretty much by the chief executive of stuff, Andrew. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? And I kind of wonder whether we're ever going to have a normal week in media, and clearly that's not the case. That was Nine to Noon's weekly media commentator Andrew Holden last Tuesday, practically pining for a normal week in the media to comment on with host Catherine Ryan. But right now, the new normal for the industry is chaotic and often a bit bleak. The morning before Andrew Holden said that, the staff of the broadcasting company MediaWorks were warned that an address to all staff would be made at 10am. And that was a bit ominous. Even before COVID-19 wreaked havoc on the media's finances, that company was in trouble. And since last October, it's been trying to sell off its loss-making TV arm, including its main channel 3 and the News Hub operation. It hasn't found a buyer for that yet, though it did manage to sell its central Auckland premises. So there were real worries that Chief Executive Michael Anderson might actually be about to announce that MediaWorks TV channels could be switched off for good, including the news. But on Monday morning, the news ended up being this at the top of the next hour. MediaWorks is cutting 130 jobs as it deals with the economic fallout from the pandemic. The company's chief executive, Michael Anderson, announced the restructure in an all-staff meeting at 10 o'clock this morning. So, not the closure some feared, but that's still a significant slice of the company's workforce. Most of those who remain have had pay cuts, which were agreed to in April, extended through to September as well. And this comes in spite of MediaWorks being one of the big beneficiaries of the government's $50 million package of short-term assistance announced last month. But there was no such help in that package for the nation's news publishers. This is not to prop up failing businesses, the broadcasting minister Chris Farfoy said bluntly at that time. Now, Last week here on Media Watch we heard how the future of New Zealand's biggest news publisher, Stuff, was up in the air. And there were rumours that the Australian company that's ended up owning it might soon close it down as part of its own plan to survive the COVID-19 chaos across the Tasman. Nine Entertainment has tried to sell stuff for more than a year without success, but while the industry here was digesting the news of the MediaWorks job cuts on Monday, unexpected news about the ownership of stuff startled everyone. This was in the same 11am RNZ News Bulletin on Monday. Journalists at the company were quick to express their glee on social media, and those MediaWatch spoke to were also pleased and intrigued by the prospect of taking a stake in the company. And they were surprised by that too. MediaWatch understands there was no hint of that move to come when there was a meeting between union representatives and stuff management, including the chief executive, last week. And if stuff were to have to make the same sort of tough redundancy calls that MediaWorks made the same morning... Well, who owns the company and how much they might have to pay for redundancies is really a key issue for the staff as well. In one of many interviews after the big reveal of the $1 deal later on Monday, Sinead Boucher was asked on TVNZ's Q&A show just how stuff staff could be turned into shareholders. Um, well, 
that is something that's still to be worked out. This deal um, has only really been put together over the last couple of weeks and it's been a real rush to sort of get it done. Mm. It was only signed at midnight last night. So now that we have acquired the company, the next step now is I will be speaking to um, people who have already implemented these kind of models in their own companies or have experienced sort of putting this sort of structure in place so that we can, you know, hopefully before too long roll something out where staff can get that, have a stake in our future, um, a direct stake, and, you know, we'll go from there. But I don't know yet exactly how that's going to work or what it'll look like. Well, these days there aren't many models locally that Sinead Boucher could look to to draw advice from on that. Consumer is a member-based outfit which prints a monthly magazine and runs a news service of a kind, and likewise the AA's Directions magazine, which has the largest print run in the country for all of its members. But allowing staff a stake, and therefore a say in the governance of a national news media company, well that's a real departure. One person though who does have relevant expertise in the UK is Dave Boyle. Against the backdrop of warnings that long-standing local newspapers and local news gathering there were also staring into the abyss of the COVID-19 crisis, Dave Boyle has produced a plan called Good News, Cooperative Solutions to the Media Crisis, which lays out how news organisations could be owned by the people who make them. It was published last week by the UK's Community Shares Company, which has cooperatised a range of local British businesses and clubs in recent years. This week, Hayden Donnell asked Dave Boyle how Sinead Boucher and her team might just do this at stuff and what the fish hooks might be in staff taking a stake in the business. An employee or worker-owned cooperative media outlet looks very similar from the outside to a standard media company. You know, it produces its publications, the people get paid, there's generally a hierarchy, um, you know, in terms of you have editors and you have all the various functions fulfilled. The big difference is that at the end of the year, when the profit gets to be distributed, instead of that given to the external investors, it's given to the people whose work has actually generated that uh, profit in the first place. They tend to be more resilient because when they have uh, the ups and downs of the economic cycle affecting them, instead of it being kind of like a diktat, so most, you know, somebody comes down from, from head office with the bad news about who's going to get fired and who's going to stick around, everybody can be part of a conversation. And they might, generally what they tend to do is say, well, we'll all take a pay cut to get us over this hump. So the, the business retains its staff, retains its know-how, and is more resilient. And secondly, because everybody can see that the people who will benefit from them being better at their jobs, working harder, are themselves. You know, there's no external shareholders who people are going to think, hang on a minute, what are they doing to actually earn this? Why should I work harder in order to get my boss a new car? Why don't I work harder and I can get me a new car? That's the kind of incentive what you get in worker and employee-owned businesses. Okay, so Stuff is our biggest news producer, and its new owner, its former CEO, Sinead Boucher, has just said that she wants to give workers a stake in the company. How would she actually go about doing it? There's all sorts of kind of issues to be fleshed out, things like can people sell their shares? Is there an internal market of shares or are they bought back by the business? Because somebody might come in and and work very hard and then want to leave. And if you've had some worker on businesses will say if you 
want to become part of the ownership, you've got to make a down payment and pay in to the to the share capital of, of the business. And one of the ways in which many companies get around it is using what are called employee benefit trusts. So the shares are kind of held in the name of the employees, but not individually by each employee so when it gets to the year end and the profits get distributed they get distributed to the employee benefit trust who then distributes them to the workers there are lots of examples of all these different types of structures and if the willingness is there from the part of the new owner and uh, who knows the business and knows the staff absolutely no reason why they can't come up with a really um, a really nice solution which really works for this particular business because I think there is some worry from like staff's employees, for instance, that they will be asked to take a pay reduction in exchange for, say, a share offering. So essentially, your shares are taken off your pay. Is that is that a concern that that, that is justified, and is that something that could happen? One of the big factors governing anything is about what's the financial situation of the business. Now, I know that the, the price paid for the business as a whole was, was pretty low. I think it was $1 or uh, something in that sort of region, which suggests that there are some liabilities to be worked through. You know, there's financial pressures. If there are some sacrifices to be made, and it's better to have that as part of a conversation with the employees, the critical thing which is governing this is that if there are concerns, this needs to be worked through with them. That's the absolute critical thing, because if you squander that goodwill, then you can have all the employee ownership in the world. But if people basically feel it's a bit of a con, then you'll never get those benefits of extra productivity, extra creativity and more resilience. What are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the mistakes that can be made? Is it just that lack of communication? Yeah, the main thing is that it's it's seen as tokenistic. Um, it's seen as a kind of uh, a way in which the, the the senior people within the company sort of look like they're being really ethical and progressive and inclusive when actually they're giving away very little power and very little money. So there's a question really at the heart of it, which is, is this a genuine sort of light bulb moment where people have realized that actually the benefits of this extra productivity and so on is something which is actually going to transform the business and make it stronger and healthier? Or is it something which is kind of mood music to make it look like, you know, the, the new boss isn't the same as the old boss, but actually really is the same as the old boss, but has just got a better line in, in making people think that they're radically different. But it's not a very common model, especially here in New Zealand. I'm just wondering, what are some cooperatively run companies, media companies in particular, around the world? Um, the main ones I know about here in the UK, um, there's a, a, a wonderful newspaper in the Scottish Highlands called the West Highland Free Press, which, and it's the main newspaper serving an enormous sort of area in the north of Scotland. If it was part of a major media group, it would have long ago ceased to exist because it's just too difficult to get the newspaper to all these tiny little um, communities where they don't have any shops and, and, and so on and so forth. And the only way in which this business is viable is because the, the employees are, are the people who own it. People tend not to do that for sort of hard-nosed businesses which are sort of repatriating the profits to uh, uh, you know what can be an often distant um, city hundreds of miles away but they do it for the West Highland Free Press because they trust it and they know that the people who are making the the effort to get the newspaper produced have the interest of that community at heart. I mean you're talking about a really locally involved high reader trust business but does it scale to an organization like say stuff where it is a national organization with multiple properties and it doesn't have that same connection to a community? 
there's um, there's you know the the company who make Wallace and Gromit have just transitioned to employee ownership. Ardman Animations, the company which do a veg box scheme, which is popular across the UK, where um, that's been privately owned and it's become employee owned because the the owners recognise that the thing what makes the business thrive is its connection with its values it you know people trust that it it's not going to use pesticides it's not going to uh, cut corners with its production and the people who are going to, who share that vision and will keep it alive are the employees rather than some uh, venture capitalists who would be looking to you know who would see a, a, an opportunity for a quick book it does scale and you know the biggest worker owned company in the world is the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation um in Spain which has 100,000 and workers from everything from supermarkets to um, high-end bikes, you know, racing bikes and white goods, fridges, freezers, you name it. And they're across all of it. And each one of these businesses is run as a workers and employee-owned company. And, it, and it's very successful. The main problem we've got is that it's generally not the way in which most companies are formed. And it's not the way in which most people who do investment in companies like to operate things for pretty obvious reasons. One of the things you've talked about is news is facing a kind of legitimacy crisis where people don't trust it, they don't trust the ownership. That's especially acute in the UK, maybe not as much here in New Zealand, but exactly how does uh, worker ownership or reader ownership, uh, cooperative ownership, address that? Most newspapers... And, and media outlets in, in communities tend to be now monopolies. The problem is keeping media outlets alive in communities, not ensuring that there's a second or a third or a fourth. The normal rules of a market don't apply. You can't, you know, if you don't like the media you've got in your community, then you're pretty stuffed. So where you've got something which is essentially a monopoly and at the same time is a critical public service, you know, who's going to go to council meetings and report on what's happening at the planning committee or at the finance committee? But if this is not accountable, if you've got a local monopoly, then it's whatever the editor in that particular community says it is. That's what the news is. Providing a mechanism for a accountability means that, that if that editor's vision of what is newsworthy in, in a particular community is out of whack with what the, the people who live in that community think, then there's a means to do something about it. Now, I hate talking like this because it's people's jobs and their livelihoods on the line, but... Is this is this a kind of a silver lining of the crisis in traditional media funding, where media is no longer seen as this kind of attractive profit centre for bigger corporates, and there is this potential for innovation in ownership models? I do think that when you drive out the megabucks from the business, you're left with the people who really care about it because of what it does, because of its essentially its public service, the thing it does for a community. The downside is that, as we've seen the world over, the easiest way to manage in this situation, if you're a mega corporation or, or at least a very large group, is to make small savings, which to you don't seem like very much. But, but in the communities which lose the journalist, something breaks, something gets lost and it's very difficult to get back so it's really pleasing to see that in in the case of stuff there's some innovative thinking going on you know if somebody came in and said i'm just going to refocus the business and really focus on cost control then i'd be very very worried because we know what that looks like it looks like sacking more journalists if you've got somebody coming in who's saying i think we need to sort of structure ourselves differently that's a really good starting point i think you know i'd be quite encouraged if i was working for stuff because it wasn't the same old hymn sheet which was being sung from here 
There's not a huge track record of success with these companies, though. I, I do think, I mean, some of them have folded in the UK, and you've noted that, but also our own cooperative media company, The City Voice, folded in 2001. Now, is that, does that indicate that there is a problem in the model, or is that just sort of the nature of business? I think it's mostly the nature of business. When you've got something which some people see as weird, it's got to bear the weight of being the good example for everyone. It doesn't mean that media cooperatives can, you know, will, will fail. It, it's sort of like the burden which is borne by, by these alternative structures is that people go, oh, I know of one thing which was a bit like that, which didn't work. So therefore, this means that this new thing you're proposing isn't going to work either. And, it, you know, that's just not sort of true. And at the same time, that period in 2000, 2010 was, it was a period of massive transformation and an awful lot of newspapers and magazines went out of business in the face of massive technological change, which is transforming its business model, which has always depended on selling its readers' eyeballs to the highest bidder. And that's really hard to make it work in the era of the internet. But I do think that the main thing which you've got going for you in any media outlet is the relationship you have with your readers. And that's what employers ownership seems to me to, to privilege by saying our employees need to stay in in the communities where they're they're reporting on and continue to do the jobs they've been doing and we're not going to go down the cost-cutting route i i do think you, your point is that they're more resilient and is that because it kind of makes profit more of a a big profit more of a nice to have rather than an absolute imperative there is this kind of idea that that media cooperatives and cooperatives in general are kind of you know, profit's a happy accident, but actually it's all about peace and love, man. It's not that a case at all. Some of the most sort of capitalistic, innovative businesses are cooperatively or employee-owned. And, you know, they very much focus on, on fantastic working experience. And a big part of that working experience, obviously, is how much do you get paid? And that's why they tend to be actually really strong businesses once they get going. The hard thing for cooperatives is often to get them going in the first place. The decisions which get made within a particular company are informed by people who have intimate knowledge of what the customers want and what the customers need and how that business is operating and how its competitors are positioned. If you've got decisions which are being made by a distant board based in Wellington or Auckland and they're informed by bankers who've lent them money and they've got they, they want to call their debts in that's a really bad basis to be making big long-term decisions on the basis of, on the need for the business because you've got lots of people who don't really understand Sinead Boucher stuff CEO has talked about giving workers a stake in the business it's not clear exactly what stake that will be I don't know whether it will necessarily be a full cooperative if you were her if you were in charge of stuff you just bought it for a dollar what would you do I would be calling a meeting of everybody to explain what I meant by that, what I was looking to unleash, why I had said I wanted to have employees in the ownership. I might try and propose a joint working group of Sinead and some other people drawn from the employees who, who, who can help shape these ideas. They can consult with the, the employees and say, here are some of the options, which of these would be really good and which would be not so good and which ones would get your support. Whatever you decide through the right process will be a great decision. So, Dave, you've actually got an interest in sports cooperatives, and the one that springs to mind when I think of sports cooperatives is the Green Bay Packers in the NFL. Yeah. Is their yeah. model something that could apply over to a company like Stuff? It could. I mean, it, the, 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 the weird thing about the Packers is, is about the 
the relationship it has with the people of Wisconsin and the fact that if it was ever sold, they'd have to build a war memorial, which given that their market capitalization is in almost a billion, it would be the, you know, almost like visible from space. There's, there's always some subtle differences about how these things operate. But, you know, the Packers are, are one of the best teams in the NFL and they, they, yet they have this weird ownership structure which the NFL actually prohibits anybody else from having ever again. Um, in sport as well, you've also got FC Barcelona and Real Madrid, which are member-owned by Munich in Germany. Most of the club, sports clubs in, 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 the, in Germany and, and Sweden and Norway and Denmark are cooperative member-owned businesses. So there's no... there's people are always surprised when they find out that certain businesses are cooperative. So Gore-Tex is employee owned. Um, so, uh, what's another one? Um, what's it called? Ocean spray, uh, is, is cooperatively owned. Best Western hotels, they're co-ops. Visa, for, you know, the, the, the credit card company was until relatively recently a cooperative and it's kind of, People don't realise the cooperatives which are sort of under their noses and in their midst. And there is a kind of, I don't know, an ignorance about it. And, and often that's compounded by the fact that, it's certainly in the UK, um, people long since stopped learning about this stuff at law school or in business school. So the people who kind of are sent out by society to sort of do businessy stuff have literally no knowledge of these weird structures. And because they've never been taught them, they think they're weird. And they're not weird at all. They're just less and less usual. But the ones which we've heard of, the Green Bay Packers, the Barcelonas, people don't, don't actually go gosh, how do they thrive despite being a cooperative? It's, it's, it's almost irrelevant that they're cooperatives. They're just, you know, it's, it's more of interest to people like me who are the kind of under-the-hood geeks who, who sort of get interested in this kind of stuff. But, um, th- you know, no matter what business sector you might think of, you will find cooperatives and employee-owned businesses. They tend not to shout about it, though, because they just want to get on doing what they do, which is to be successful in, in terms of whatever success looks like in their sector. Be that winning the, 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 the Super Bowl or winning the Champions League or you know, getting, getting profitability higher up to give everybody a bonus, which is half their annual salary or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, well, exactly. And then these are some of the teams that have some of the highest payrolls in sport, which is interesting. You know, they are cooperatively up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are corporate as a panacea, or are there other models which are more promising for the media? I think of something like Substack, which is a subscription newsletter that journalists can sign up to and send out. Or we have yep. sort of little startups like the Spinoff or Newsroom, which are sort of owner-operated but have a mix of reader funding and government funding and big sponsors. Any model which is looking to sort of address the challenges faced by the media at this particular moment are all grappling with the same issue, which is how do we get more money from our readers? Because essentially readers have been, you know, as the saying goes, if you're not paying and you're the product or if you're not paying full price, you're also the product. All models are all about how do we try and get more money from these people. Some of them involve micropayments. Some of them involve subscriptions. My sort of fundamental take on this is that um, because this involves the readers understanding the importance of what the media company is doing, um, if you've got employee ownership, you're going to have strong news values, 
connected to communities which are going to be able to make that case. So if people need to be told, I'm sorry, we're going to have to raise the cover price to cover the fact that we're not getting as much advertising as we used to, then people are going to go, well, that's, in, you know, we, we, we respect that because we know that you guys really do a good job and you really value what we do. If it was a case of we're trying to raise the cover price, but, you know, by the same time, the production meant that the newspaper's been terrible for the last five years and everybody's been noticing more and more errors, that's a really bad basis to have a conversation with your readers about how they might put their hands in their pockets to support the media in, in, in to, to a greater extent than they hitherto have been asked to do so. We have a newspaper like that in, in New Zealand where people say that kind of thing, you know, the New Zealand Herald. Uh, which is this oldest day, yeah. and and people say, oh no, it's been it's, it's this this is not necessarily true, but in in some front facing parts of the business might be, you know, people say, oh well, we've, yeah. we've seen less quality, so why should we pay your subscription, which you've moved to? Uh, it's you know, the Guardian in the UK has got an interesting model, which is kind of halfway cooperative. It's not really cooperative in in that they've got member subscriptions and and support um, is really important, and if it and if it didn't exist, then people who subscribe to those kind of values would notice the lack of it. They would notice that the world was not as good a place as it was if there wasn't somebody to argue for the points The Guardian argues for. And there's the investigations The Guardian investigates. And they've kind of said, well, you know, it's, it's, it, it needs people like you to step up to the plate. And I really support that because... If you ask me to support the newspaper as an institution, but only allow me to buy the newspaper, you know, I'm the kind of person who never gets around to finishing a newspaper. And as a tightwad, that really gets on my that sticks in my craw. So I won't buy a newspaper the next day because I've not finished today's. But if that's the only way you give me to to support your journalism, that's a problem. Whereas if you can decouple it from consumption and say. I can buy your newspaper and I can read the paper, but I can also support you on a kind of, not because I liked that particular edition of the paper, I wanted to read what was in that particular edition that day. It's because I just want you to exist in the world to carry on doing what you're doing. Now, that they've now managed to get to break-even point, and it's massively accelerated their, their sort of strategic um, business plan, which was all about sort of to cover for the the declining of decline of advertising. Um, and that's been really powerful. And they've got over, a, I think, a million, they get over a couple of million pounds a year in, in UK, in obviously UK pounds, um, in, in, in the UK to, to support that. And those readers are drawn from the world over. And those readers don't have any actual say. In the, in the governance and the running of the newspaper. And it's just like, we, you know, go you guys. We'll give you some extra money and you carry on doing what you do as The Guardian. I suppose my, my, my complaint to that would be, I think if they actually gave people something a little bit more looking like ownership of The Guardian, then people would be prepared to give them even more. So even if there is a subscription model... What if you could use the cooperative media structure to actually get more people to pay more in subscription values? That's going to make you a stronger business, and that's one of the sort of thing. That's what I think the Guardian are missing. But you know, but the same token, they'd look at it and say, "What's the problem, Dave?" And I'd have to say, "Yeah, I don't see one right now." I think you might. I think it's more a case of you know, look what you could have won rather than rather than a case of they're doing something which is problematic. There's one more, sorry, just to mention, there's an interesting one in Berlin called Tageszeitung, which is um, reader-supported reader and employee-owned. 
Uh, so the employees sort of make the decisions and they, they elect the editor, other crazy stuff like that. Uh, but it's actually supported by the readers who recognise that if it wasn't for the money they put into it, then the, it wouldn't be viable. And that's, uh, that's something they're prepared to do. So that's an interesting hybrid as well. Thanks so much for joining me, Dave. Thank you. That was Dave Boyle from the UK's Community Shares Company and the author of the recent report, Good News, a Cooperative Solution to the Media Crisis, and he was talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. As we heard earlier, the current chief executive of Stuff, Sinead Boucher, is due to become the company's proprietor from this week on after handing over $1 for it to the outgoing owners in Australia, Nine Entertainment.